And we are back with the Energy Week podcast. Ryan Ray alongside the good doctor herself at Wald. How are you doing today? Everything is pretty good here. Interesting uh, oil market developments. Yes, so. yes, there are. Yes, there are a lot of things going on in the world. Okay, so let's get into it. Russia forecasts stable oil output to 2025 to set up stockpiles. Russia's oil production <laughs> is forecast to remain stable until 2025. Deputy Minister Pavel Sorokin said, while Moscow plans reverse reverses in order to make its supplies more resilient. Okay. What do you think, Dr. Wall? Do you buy this? So, yeah. So, so what exactly is going? So I think there's a big question mark with what's going on with Russia, because remember like last month they were saying, we're going to cut production, you know, whatever. Now we have a OPEC plus voluntary production cut. And now Russia says, well, we're going to cut production, but we're also going to keep our production stable till 2025. And maybe maybe what they mean is by this is they're not going to be exporting as much. They're going to be putting it into their own reserves. Is that maybe sound like what they're saying? It's, it's very confusing. Um, I mean, maybe they they are happy with a lower production rate so that they can... Um, you know, maybe that's better for their fields. Maybe they want to do some work on their oil reserves. And maybe, maybe that's really what they're talking about. Maybe they're not talking about, okay, yeah, plans reserve. Maybe, uh, see, that's the question. Are they talking about stockpile, really stockpiling? Or are they talking about like, maybe they want to do some work to their reservoirs to make their supplies more? So I, I'm not really sure. I think that this really does demand a bit more um Explanation, though it does say they're going to, it says, said that construction of storage facilities of no less than 100 million tons, which is more than 700 million barrels, may take up to four years. Hope the Chinese build that stuff a lot faster. <laughs> yeah, so they don't have I don't know. I a large SPR like we do in the, in the U.S. then. No, I don't think so. Or, that doesn't, I mean, either. I don't think they're a member of the IEA. So mm-hmm. I don't think that they they do. Um, but did he mean that they're gonna that they're they're cutting their production by five hundred thousand barrels a day and they're gonna keep it at that level, or that they're not cutting by five hundred thousand barrels a day? They're gonna keep it at that level, but like that five hundred thousand barrels a day is gonna be going into reserves, so it's essentially off the market. Right, because yeah, it it's, says that according according to current for, forecast, oil production will be stable at a stable level until twenty twenty five. And so you're, you're right. You're saying we're taking off half a million barrels. Then, our, so you're taking that off. Let's assume you take that off and you keep your current, you keep it at that production level. Then how do you fill this storage capacity without taking more off the market? It would seem that the market, what the market would be interested in is um, understanding which of those two numbers you have. But but also if they do build kind of a, a large or somewhat large um war chest, if you will, of reserves, what would be what would be their interest in doing that? Just to have more control to push down prices when they need to, or when prices ramp up, they can um, steady them off? Because part of the narrative is they're saying that they've been able to withstand the sanctions. And so I wonder if this is something to combat the sanctions. Like, hey, we're going to endure the sanctions by putting more oil into reserves. And that way we can get to the market when prices are high to capitalize or push prices down or or whatever. I don't, what would be the play? Yeah. I'm thinking the play is either 
either they that 500,000 barrels is staying in the ground and they see that basically as stockpiles because it would be very easy for them to just pump it. So it's like we don't have to why should we pump it and put it in storage if we just don't pump it and it's but it's easily accessible so we can just ramp up production as needed. So that's one possibility. I think that they definitely like the idea of having some sort of they like the Saudis, okay, have a lot of spare capacity. Maybe this is their idea of saying, okay, now we're going to have spare capacity so that we can affect impact the market like this if prices go up and we see an opportunity to make a lot of money. Hey, we can put that oil, send it to India or or whatever. Um, but I, I honestly kind of wonder if they're trying to make themselves like that. But then they're really just confusing the world because it's like Saudi Arabia is like, okay, we're going to increase our spare capacity. We're going to increase our capacity. But a lot of people, when they read that, think that means they're increasing their production. So some of it has to do with people are stupid. I think they're very unclear. And it's I, I really do think that the, it's a big question mark out there. And that if you are looking at the market, the question of is Russia actually cutting production and or cutting exports? That's a really big question. Um, this is all a voluntary cut through OPEC plus. So, you know, there's no consequences or whatnot if you don't cut. Um, you know, they've gotten a boost in terms of prices considering how much, you know, shadow oil sales Russia does. For all you know, they're just going to be selling more and and just trying to keep it, you know, on the down low. Yeah, that's that's also a possibility as well. I guess if you put it in storage and then ship it to market that way. Um, speaking of OPEC plus OPEC chief pushes back on IEA's criticism of cuts. Okay. Is he right? Is he wrong? He said, he said, it's like a broken record. <laughs> the criticisms of OPEC. Oh God. I know. It's like IEA. We really want everyone to stop investing in oil and to stop producing oil so we can meet our climate targets. IEA when OPEC cuts production. Don't do this. It's bad for everybody. I mean, come on. I, I don't know. I'm, I feel a little bit bad, but like, you know, I can see why the, um, why the um, OPEC secretary general is, is doing this. And I have to apologize to our listeners because I thought that this article was, um, was um, not behind the paywall, but apparently it is actually behind the paywall. So I'm just going to go to the Twitter feed of the, and I'm going to include a link to the Twitter feed of the person who did the um, interview and wrote the article so that oh, can, you can get a I sense. I read of, it on my end. I wonder if there's a Yeah, I, 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 I was able to read it um, earlier this morning and now it seems to be behind a paywall. So, mm. oh, here it is. Maybe <laughs> here it is. Okay. So uh, if you're having trouble accessing it, try again. <laughs> yeah. Now, now it's, now, now it's up. So, um, okay. So interesting. So this is the new president, uh, new, what is the secretary general um, used to be Mohammed Barkindo and then he retired. And, and so now it's this guy from Iraq. Um, and so he, <laughs> I like the way he says, first of all, this is not the first time the IEA has criticized OPEC and OPEC plus. Unfortunately, it has become like a broken record yet time and time again, Market fundamentals prevail and OPEC's more accurate forecasts and decisions prove to be, be the correct ones. Those fighting words, like is he taking a shot at the um, forecasters at the IEA and saying, our OPEC forecasters in Vienna, they're just much better than yours. <laughs> I mean, that that's that's, that's like, like fighting words, you know? So we're gonna have a war of the, the oil forecasters. 
nobody wins that one. Yeah. <laughs> nobody wins that one. <laughs> yeah, even especially JP Morgan. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So going back to your point though, you said the IA is, you know, pushing transition and then they get frustrated on the cut. Um Part of the, the thing, I, I think that it's hard to determine what people in the West, apart from the IA, expect for OPEC to do. Yeah. Right? Like, what? Like what is it, if you think that OPEC should play nice, use that term, with U.S. producers, why? Why should they play nice? Why does that yeah. advise them? And uh, it's not like uh, a, a... Go ahead. Oh, I should say, it's like a broken record. It's like... Why are they criticizing OPEC? Like either like walk the walk, criticize OPEC, or just don't. You know what I mean? Just like like deal with it. Like understand that OPEC is gonna make its own decisions and you wanna push energy transition, fine. Or if you really wanna push what you're supposed to push, which was, you know, afford like a, a, a to be a consumer, a group of consumer nations advocating for oil consumers then advocate for oil consumers. Like, what are you, IEA? <laughs> Apparently you're not a bunch of very reputable forecasters because, yeah. you know, yeah. when OPEC starts saying that your forecasts are junk. Right. It, yeah, well, in this, I think when you talk about the energy transition in general, it's, 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 it's not as easy as saying we're going to leave fossil fuels and go to renewables or whatever you want to say, because there is market realities in place. You can't just snap your fingers and go from A to B. So if you say you want prices to be low, that means you have to do more output, right? Or somehow in demand. But even if you curtail demand, you then have to keep the cost to drill at low because otherwise the price could then go up. So it's 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 not like it's an easy straight path saying, well, we want to have a demarcation line. It's like when the U.S. was going to go off the metric system. You know, <laughs> they set that date and all that stuff, and it, it never happened. It's not yeah. easy to switch from one thing to another. Um, it's just not. It's it's, it's a process. It takes a yeah. a long period of time to get get from one spot to the next. I, I love this this quote from the the interview. It's OPEC released its monthly oil market report a day before the IEA's oil monthly report. What are the major differences between OPEC and IEA views? Okay, so this is the April monthly report, which we're we're, we're halfway done with April. Okay, so OPEC's uh, assessment of demand for for the April monthly oil market report maintained global economic forecasts for 2023 at 2.6%, but warned that the global economy will continue to navigate through challenges, including inflation, higher interest rates, particularly in the Eurozone and US, and high debt levels in many regions. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, their global oil demand forecast for 2023 is at 2.3 million barrels per day. So I'm assuming that's what they mean as the increase from the previous year. Similarly, the IEA maintained its global demand growth forecast this month for 2 million barrels a day in 2023. So there's a difference of 300,000 barrels a day in terms of what they see as the growth. So he's like, we're actually really 
close to each other. Um, apparently, it says, but if you're looking at China's oil demand growth, that's the bulk of the anticipated global oil demand growth. OPEC revised its forecast upward this month by about 50,000 barrels a day, up to 760,000 barrels a day. The IEA revised it upwards by almost 200,000 barrels a day, reaching 1.2 million barrels a day. Okay, that's a big difference. So basically the IEA thinks, wow, we're going to see major demand growth from China. And OPEC is like, no, we don't think Chinese demand is going to grow that much. I mean, that's a big difference. We've been and saying that been on the show. This? Who has been saying, yes. been saying that? Ryan, Ryan has been saying that. If you were, yeah. Uh. I don't want to go on my analyst rant. I'm not an <laughs> analyst rant, but it doesn't mean OPEC could whiff, but they would have, especially the Saudis, would have the best insight outside of China of what people think, I mean, maybe include Russia, but they would have the best insight on what they think China's economy is going to do. Better than Ryan Ray or Ellenwald or the IEA, EIA or Intervest or whoever, they would they would actually have the insight. And I don't know why these analysts don't just simply say, well, we're basing our forecast off of the Saudis cutting because the Saudis should know better. Like that's that that actually makes the most sense. Yep. Like you you're actually doing your job as an analyst instead of saying predicting GDP growth and all these markets and just like it's I I, I can understand you getting it wrong. Because you base your interpretation of what the Saudis were doing because the Saudis are meeting with the Chinese so often. I can get that. That makes sense. Um, if you turn up if you turn up being wrong. But all these other things they do, uh, I, I don't know. It's just a lot of guesswork, it seems. Yeah. I mean, that's a really big difference. I, I mean, I'm I'm inclined to go with the OPEC forecast for China. And I think that given what we've seen from China, that um, you know, they might they might be right. Yeah. It, or at least more close. <laughs> yeah, the argument isn't that they're going to be right because they know. It's just that they should know more and should be responding with real data versus what the IEA is doing is taking this conglomerate of information and, and trying to predict. So yeah. um, what would make more sense? That Xi Jinping is going to tell the Saudis what he's going to do this year? And then the exactly. Saudis try to plan accordingly? Or somehow the IEA has secret information that they can make a better prediction? That, that's that's all that's that's as simple as the point is so um anyways okay well, well we're gonna count this as a win for me regardless of how it pans out in the end yeah <laughs> okay um let's see here russia oil exports back to pre-war levels them sanctions are crushing the russian economy dr wald they are almost yeah. ready to give up it sounds like oh i know definitely yeah um here, this is a CNN article too. So Moscow's exports of crude oil and oil products rose in March to their highest level since April 2020, jumping by 600,000 barrels a day. That's what the IEA says. I thought they were supposed to be cutting 500,000 barrels a day. What's going on? Um, interesting though. Uh, well, this is exports of crude and oil products, excuse me not just crude oil. I think they're only cutting crude oil. Um, yeah, apparently the Saudis and the UAE are just like, they cannot get enough of Russian oil products. They're just buying tons of that stuff. Um, either they're using it internally, you know, they're using it domestically so they can export more of their own or they're just like repackaging it. Okay. But apparently and, they're buying a lot. Well, and, and here's, I mean, according to this, here's the IA again. 
it claims that the Russia's, Russia's revenue is down 43% from a year ago and is forced Russia to sell more barrels to a limited pool of customers. Um, right. So if you're putting pressure on Russia, they're going to increase their output if they can. And to your point, maybe that's part of the play with the building the reserves, which is you build the what reserves and then you sell them off market like Iran yes. or someone else is doing. And then you say, yeah. oh, well, you know, we're, we're keeping this level, but oh, by the way, we're selling this to the, you know, to the black market, if you will. Remember Iran's flow stove? Remember their flo- floating storage? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Russia doesn't float it. Yep, similar <laughs> thing, perhaps. I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, I also love how they're so obsessed with like how much money Russia is making. Lifted Russia's estimated revenue from oil exports to $12.7 billion. Now, the IA says that's still down 43% from a year ago because of this. But like, they're so obsessed with how much money Russia is making. And I know these people are like, they're doing these calculations and they're like, well, can, is this enough? You know, if Putin wants to continue this war, a 43% drop in oil revenue is not going to stop it. Like he'll just take the money from elsewhere. I I don't like, I I don't know. I don't understand these people. I mean, I'm not like some sort of Russia expert, but like, I don't think Putin is that hard of a nut to crack in terms of like, you know, he's not gonna be like, oh, well, I need to feed my st- the starving children in my country. So right. I am, you know, going to just give in because of these oil sanctions. Like, right. come on. For the government said, dec- I mean, they're, they're just charging more taxes too. They mm-hmm. are like increasing the duties on it. So, so like if they can't get it in like basic revenue, they'll get it from some other thing And there. And apparently they're making tons of money off of like selling insurance and shipping and all that other stuff. So, you know, Reuters claims that Russia's overall income plunged nearly 21% compared with the same period in 2022. Is that really that big a drop? I mean, this 21% drop in like... When you don't have to run for election, it's not that big. (laughs) You're right. When when you're kind of um, free from having to go out and find voters, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I did, you mentioned Russia expert. I did have a guy on, Matthew Owens. I don't know, two or three weeks ago, he said he thinks that I think this winter is when the war will probably that's probably about as long as Putin wants to go. So yeah, is interesting. Remember, he had a he had a thesis behind it. I can't remember now, hmm. but he went through it. So I think I think I think by the end of this year or by the end of this winter, there's some reason he thinks that that that'll be the the end of it. What the other thing? But they have to still. But they're going to have to do something so they can at least declare victory, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, like right. Russia's not going to be like, oh, sorry, we lost now. Mm-hmm. like they've got to actually like find some way to like declare a victory like get part of ukraine or like take out Zelensky or so- something right right uh, well something yeah and so yeah i did want to ask you about this because one of the things that several of the russian experts have said is that anytime something with china comes up they almost always just poo-poo the whole china thing they're like yeah China doesn't really care about Russia. Its economy is not big enough. It can't really be, you know, and mm. Russia, from their perspective, you know, they can't really wield the power that they need. And so the other guy, the, the, the guy that this was after, right after Xi Jinping met with Putin. And the guy said, well, if you look at the trade value of the EU to China versus Russia's trade value to China, it's not even close. The EU is far more important of a trade partner. 
then you talk to the China experts and they all they talk about how important Russia is to China. And it's really weird that from the Russia experts perspective, they don't think China really cares that much about Russia. From the China experts perspective, the ones I talked to at least, they really hype this up. I can't make heads or tails of why you get two different side, two different opinions on this. That's a really interesting um, point. I mean, do you think that this is something that the Chinese are kind of pushing? And that's why it's being picked up by the Chinese experts, because like China's say China is pushing its relationship with Russia, mm-hmm. probably because, yeah, it's not that big of an economic relationship, but it could be really valuable to them in terms of energy. Like this is a huge opportunity for China to basically like get a really good secure supply of natural gas and oil that they didn't have access to before. And to like, so maybe it's like there, it's something that the, the, the like people in China are really hyping up. And so the Chinese experts are picking up on the fact that like, this is always being talked about. But I think it is a really good point to keep in mind is that Russia's economy is not that big. I remember a while back, I was like doing some kind of like GDP yeah. comparison. And if you compare like the GDP of Russia to like, it's like on par with like, a state like a state. one of yeah. like not and not like california not yeah, like, a like the top state. 10 of states in the u.s it's yeah not, yeah and it's not think, even you, that much if you think of the top 10 states in the u.s there's only a handful of states that really produce the gdp anyway so yes. yeah so yeah. i mean it's not like rhode island but no, it's no. not like it's not like california or no, it's not which Texas is interesting or, or florida yeah but one of the interesting things, though, is that Russia does produce a lot of raw material. So it's just a big player in like the commodities market, like grain and minerals and oil and things like that. So I think that even though GDP wise, it's not super significant in certain things like like fertilizer and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it plays a bigger role. Mm-hmm. So I do think that's why like we need to pay more attention but i wonder if if that's part of it is like china just wants to elevate russia because they they're looking for a bigger relationship that kind of plays actually into the next article we have um which is actually a piece that i wrote um apparently there are discussions about so there's a bill in congress now to um there are a couple of bills um there's a bill to ban selling our spr oil to china which passed the house and i think is going to the senate there's also a bill that's been introduced to ban oil exports to china by none other than the senator from my home state of florida marco rubio which is a dumb 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 ass idea like not not your your smartest thing wasn't he going to retire rubio didn't he he's young he, i know but didn't, didn't like three two elections ago he said yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna rerun again or something like that <laughs> apparently not <laughs> um anyway he and uh, is uh, yeah because so he's introduced this bill which is dumb 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 but apparently there is talk because this the there's a push to maybe include banning lng exports to china and that's an interesting nut because um like the U.S. doesn't sell a huge amount of oil to China. We do sell some, and we're not a big player in China's like like we're a bit player in China's you know import or crude oil import market. But we're a big player in their we're a much bigger player in their LNG market. I mean, we're like the second biggest exporter of LNG to China behind Australia. Believe it or not, like we're now higher than Qatar. 
And contracts with Chinese companies are actually really important for American LNG producers and getting like their plants going and, and expanding and things like that. And so, you know, my analysis of this is that if they do decide to ban LNG exports to China, that would basically push Russia even farther into like make, make China even more dependent on Russian Russian um, natural gas. They're already building a pipeline so they can just get natural gas, you know, directly from Russia. I think they're expanding a pipeline they already have. Um, my biggest question with that is, does China have a, a pipeline network internally so that they can actually transport this to the coast? Or is all that natural gas just going to be used in like the big inside expanse of China and they still are going to be really dependent on LNG imports for all the coastal stuff? Um, why so that's, keep... that's a question. I'm not really familiar right. with China's pipeline networks. But... I don't understand why you keep, not you, but why we keep yeah. pushing China away. Like that's like. It's this idea of like, we need to retaliate against them for their like spy balloon. <laughs> and it's such a stupid idea because if you look at it, LNG has actually been an area that was really good for diplomacy mm -hmm. between the US and China, like during the trade war. So China would buy our LNG on the spot market. They never really did any contracts. And then during the trade war, that went to zero. They weren't buying any LNG because China put big tariffs on it. But then that first like round of negotiations, LNG was a big part of that. And um, and so they dropped their tariff or they granted exemptions or whatever it is to, to LNG. And then suddenly all these Chinese companies started signing long-term contracts with American companies. And so I think that, like, I think that LNG is actually an area like we want, do, don't we want to have influence in China? Like this is the way we have influence. We don't really export, I mean, I guess we export grain and stuff, but like, this is a big area where they not only need our LNG, they want our LNG and they want our LNG in the long run. They want to buy a lot of it and they want to buy it over like 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And so it just seems like, like, why would you cut that off out of some sort of weird, like, retribution act? Why don't you use that as a way to, like, have better relations? Yeah. Well, for the listeners who want to hear the opposite side of that, uh, when China oh. Attacks had a podcast with Colonel Grant Newsham the other day, and he goes through why he thinks, I'm a natural gas we talked about, but, you know, um, the, op the opposing view of the try to trade with the more idea. Um, hmm. For me, for me, I, I think it's, I don't sit here and naively believe that you can trade your way with China to make them change behavior. But I think that's your best shot. I think it's your best shot, right? And so you might wake up one morning and China has invaded Taiwan and you go, well, you sold them all that LNG. Okay, well, that's that's possible. If you don't sell them the LNG, though, you've increased the chances that they're going to invade Taiwan for sure. Like you, you didn't minimize the chances of them invading Taiwan by stop trading with them. And so, um, that that you know, so yeah, I don't understand this logic. And you know, for someone like Rubio, let's take a shot at him for a second here. Don't just don't come out and say you're a free market proponent if you want to pass bills like this. Just just don't just just don't say you're, you're for the free market. That's fine, but just don't claim to be a free market candidate. And I don't know if he does or not anymore, but um, if you want to ban what U.S. companies can do, especially international, 
uh, you lose the free to market moniker in my book. So. Yeah, I just it, it's it's so and it's also, you know, and I, I read this whole thing from this like industrial coalition group saying that their argument was basically like, we should stop exporting our natural gas because we need it at home and it'll cut energy prices and make everything better for industrial production at home. Which I get that argument, but it just doesn't work like that because we produce natural gas in very in certain areas and we can't get it to other areas. So unless you want to build all your factories in southern Texas and southern Louisiana, like you, you like we can't get that natural gas. Like you can't get that natural gas to the Northeast. It's like say and saying you can't export it to China or anywhere else is basically saying that you want to kill the the natural gas production industry because they're going to have too much natural gas. There's nowhere for it to go. And we can't, we're not, we clearly are not going to end the Jones Act. We're clearly not going to build more pipelines. I mean, these things are taking years and years. It, if you want to at least have a robust, you know, domestic energy industry, we're just going to have to trade it. Like, like, unless we want to really be serious about not shooting ourselves in the foot with our energy policy. Like we just, the best way is to just participate in an international energy trade. And China is a huge consumer. They want to do business with American companies in this respect. We should encourage that. It helps both us. It helps our companies. If you're just going to ban it, and what kind of messages that send also to other, to other, you know, um, countries that might be looking into doing long-term contracts that says, oh, well, if America just decides doesn't like you or you do something to like that pisses them off and their senators want to score a political point, they'll just shut off your your LNG contracts. I mean, you can't just like, like these are contracts. These are things that people, like business things that people enter into. It can just have the government void it because of some like desire to score political points. One more on this just because it just gets my goat. Um, it, we all agree that China is puts out mass propaganda. Of course, our own government does too, but they put out mass propaganda. And all you do is feed into the, the low-hanging fruit propaganda when you put this message out there. You can't trust the U.S. You can't work with the U.S. The U.S. doesn't like us. They are a big enemy of us. They're not our fans. All you do is play into the narrative, which solidifies the home base, right? Because they can go get access to this at some point and look and to see. So you don't you you don't make it hard for them to rally the troops internally when you put this kind of narrative out there. Um and then when and then so then China responds and they'll say, oh well, because you're talking about cutting off LNG, we we might not do this. Well, and then you respond back. So you you play into the game that they want you to play. And I just, I, I, I don't understand the simpletons in charge of this stuff and just how stupid they are sometimes. But anyways, okay. I, I really think it's all politics. And like, he's like, oh, I can like, and they don't actually think about how it works. It's like, oh, all these people who want to produce stuff in America say this is a good idea. Plus it can make me look tough on China. And so like, and then I also think though that they, that they introduce this stuff that they know really has no chance of getting through mm -hmm. so that they can just like say they did it and then they can blame it on, you know, the other side or whatever they want to blame it on for not happening. So I, I, don't, I, I really don't think it's like a real thing. I, even I uh, agreed. And you know, all I'm saying is just don't be if as a free market proponent, I mean, there's, I guess, some limitation upon the free market, but I don't, I, I have to figure out where that's at, but as a 
heavy free market proponent. I would never propose a bill like this just to score points. I have integrity, not much, but a little bit of integrity. Um, and so if, so what, but then beyond that, if you're tr- Rubio at one time had presidential aspirations, you have to think about, um, you know, what, what, why are, how are the consequences? So if China retaliated and said, well, you know, whatever they're going to do in retaliation to some of this nonsense, the problem is Rubio then doesn't take responsibility and go, you know what? I was just joking. I was trying to score points. And so it, it only pushes things further away. And this one more point on this LNG stuff, we couldn't get Europe to buy it from us. Okay. We couldn't get Europe to buy it from us. And, and they were wanting to buy it from Russia. So this kind of like, Hey, we're going to tell you where you can sell it at. You couldn't even get our, our alleged allies to buy <laughs> stuff from us. So let's, let's just pump the brakes on who we yeah. can and can't sell it to. Oh yeah. It took, a, it took a war and a pipeline getting blown up to sell it to, to the Europeans. Yeah. So. It's yeah. And and I completely agree. And, and I also, but I also agree like, yeah, this kind of posturing stuff, like it, it doesn't look good in like, if you're trying to say that people in other countries who don't, really understand our political system and the politics game that's being played think that this is a think this is real like they see this and they're like oh shoot this is a a real possibility and you know they don't you know and 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 i get that especially if you're from like a more authoritarian country where like when the people in charge say they're going to do something it gets done Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay speaking of simpletons let's talk about europe's largest (laughs) nuclear reactor launches as continent splits over atomic energy. Okay. I love this. What, I love what, this. I mean, uh, in Germany, like, yeah, banning Germany is for pulled, 10 decades before Germany pulled the plug. Haha, I like that line on mm-hmm. its nuclear facilities on Sunday. Lithuania and Italy had already quit nuclear energy production. So, who's left in Europe producing nuclear energy? Oh no, use it says using nuclear power. I think they mean producing nuclear energy because we all know that Germany buys power from like France and stuff and, and sure. they're generating it uh, nuclear. Uh, okay, it says Belgium, Spain, and Switzerland already said they'll phase it out in a decade. There's absolutely no way Switzerland's going to phase it out. I-, I guarantee it. Switzerland is not going to phase it out. They, they might say it, but they, they can't because they can't, because they don't want to destroy their like beautiful alpine, you know, landscapes by papering them all over with solar panels and windmills, which won't even produce enough energy. Switzerland gets most of its energy from nuclear and hydro. So unless Switzerland's just planning to buy power from elsewhere, they need those nuclear plants. Like they, like they're, they're not going to, they're not going to burn natural gas. They refuse to like do anything that will like destroy their alpine, you know, landscapes, which I get because it's a huge part of their economy and their heritage and, and tourism and stuff. So they're not going to want to pollute that in any way. So I just don't think that they can exist without nuclear power unless they find a way to just buy electricity from somewhere else. Um, I, I, I bet they're not going to phase it out. It's, it's insane. Oh, but... France, Britain, and Sweden are all planning nuclear projects. Go them. Like, we don't do new nuclear in the U.S. Like, 60% of Finns favored nuclear power. Hmm. How about that? Good for the Finns. Do you think that you'll have, like, Poland and, like, other countries, like, basically, like, building huge nuclear power plants on the border with Germany because they know that Germany will just buy their electricity and they can just, like, make money off of it? Like you stupid Germans, you won't produce it. We'll just put it right next to you and sell it. 
I thought the Germans had kind of wised up. They were kind of on the right track, but I, yeah. And then they, I don't know. They like, they like delayed it, but now I think the delay has ended. Well, I mean, 12 months ago, maybe we we're talking about this huge potential for catastrophic failure of Europe's energy yeah. sector because they couldn't have natural gas and they had a mild winter. The gas was there. People were saying, maybe you'll see that this winter um as the as it is you know i don't know we'll see um but to go to say we're gonna we're just gonna end the nuclear industry is i mean they already had to roll back their rent control thing that they had going on there because it was such a disaster um i don't know i don't know europe is so i mean people think that like the u.s is like weird and schizophrenic and totally can't understand the u.s and i get it there are certain things that make it really difficult to understand but like Europe also has its like things that are impossible to understand. Oh, Europe. Oh, Europe. Land of Big Orn. You ain't got a shot today. So <laughs> there we go. I just like, yeah, we, yeah, we had to. I just, I, I don't know. I really like, I, I, I don't know. I think, I really think that these countries are, it's like, um, it's like, it's like states in the Northeast. They're like, we don't want to, you know, have any bad like power plants in, you know, power, fossil fuel power plants in our state. So we're just going to buy energy from the grid that's produced elsewhere. They're like, okay, but like you buy from West Virginia, it's going to be coal. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like, they're just going to end up having to buy energy from other countries that are producing it from nuclear or whatever else. And then they're like, oh, well, we're so green because we got rid of all our nuclear plants. And we're like, oh yeah. And how much are your mm -hmm. energy bills and how much energy are you importing from other countries? Uh, it's, I don't know. It's really, what's also really funny is, um, is this like the, the, the last paragraph, Finland has a very strong culture of trust in authorities and experts says a nuclear scientist. Public confidence that nuclear waste can be disposed of safely, quote, has enabled people to accept nuclear power. Hmm. It's very interesting. So the fin, 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 Finnish people have very strong trust in authorities and experts. Hmm. Sorry, I, I don't like that. And so therefore the authorities told them that they can safely dispose of nuclear waste. What are they going to do? Like send it to another country? Ship it to China. They're going to, Germany's going to, yeah, you can put land <laughs> in Germany, so that's probably what's oh, happen. Oh, God. Oh, gracious. Okay. All right. <laughs> I think that's the last nonsense of the day. Yeah. Oh, where will you be this week, Dr. Wald? This week, I will be on investing.com with another column. And uh, so far, that's it right now. Okay. Um, inside the war room for our energy folks, let's see here. Last. On the 12th, I had on Naomi Orskis, I think that's her last name. She's the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at Harvard. And she has a book out, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. And we talked a lot of energy. Obviously, we came at it from two different perspectives, but I think it was a it was a great conversation. So there is a a differing opinion for all of our not as free market folks as myself who want to hear someone's that perspective. So uh, I enjoy that. With that being said, we will be back next week. Sounds good. <laughs>